Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. My guest today is Kashyap Sirium, who recently blew up on the internet after posting a very interesting thread about Nvidia's recent earnings. In this thread he highlighted some very troublesome facts about the recent earnings. Not only did he point out the fact that some of Nvidia's revenues haven't been paid for yet, in other words that there are risks of impairment in the future, but also the fact that some of the recent share repurchases could have been done in order to help spike the price during earnings. And of course, there's the now quite well-known fact of the relationship between Nvidia and CoreWeave. So how did this startup receive 2.3 billion worth of H100s? And how exactly does a company receive a loan based on what can only be described historically as a depreciating asset? So today I got the chance to ask Kashyap everything to do with his post and his thoughts on the Nvidia earnings and what Nvidia is doing. Is there some kind of accounting irregularity here? Is Nvidia doing something illegal? And even if they're not doing something illegal, should investors be worried about anything? Of course, once we put all this together, the question is, is now time to short Nvidia? How do we profit from this situation? To wrap up, I also got the chance to ask Kashyap about some of his other investments, his thought on Bitcoin and gold, and his general background. I really want to thank Kashyap for doing this interview with me. It, it was truly enlightening. I've had this issue of NVIDIA in my head since I saw his post and it was just absolutely great to get his insights on this. If you haven't already, do yourselves a very big favor and go follow him on Twitter or on his website. The links will be on the description. And as always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome to the show, Kashyap Suram. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, James. Good to be here. All right, so we're here today, of course, you know, to blow the lid off of this, you know, trillion-dollar conspiracy, you might say, or at the very least, uh, something very interesting that's going on with Nvidia. Obviously, I saw your post on Twitter, which really blew up. Very interesting information there. Before we get into the core of the issue here, which is, of course. You know, those Nvidia earnings and you know everything that's going on potentially with CoreWeave. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about your background, uh, how you got into investing, and and just what you're doing right now. Oh yeah, so I um, used to work in IT pre-sales actually, right after my MBA. So that was like last decade, and after that, I I always kind of knew that investing was my passion. So. I moved around from firm to firm, like uh, started with the uh, equity analyst for Indian equities because uh, I'm an Indian. So that was the easiest way into the industry. And then funny story, I got into gold mining stocks in a Mexican company. So I worked there for oh. five years and that's where I learned uh, pretty much everything like security analysis, valuation, the whole thing. And that's also when I caught the first crypto wave because that was the time when crypto was picking up and Mexico was kind of like a haven for Americans to do things that they don't get to do in their home country, right? So you had people from Panama <laughs> coming in, you had that whole boom. And so that's kind of how I expanded my reach, got from gold to crypto. And then I just kept adding other sectors from there and then picked up shipping. Then recently I picked up energy, tech, and I just kept going. So Right now, what I do is I trade my own money. I trade my family's money and I have a few clients and I also have a consulting business, which is 
built around helping people, you know, non-finance people with their portfolios. So that's me. Awesome. Well, we're really happy to hear that you're also into crypto and stuff. Uh, we can definitely talk a little bit about that. But first, let's get into what we're really here to talk about and just a bit of background in case anyone's been living under a rock. Of course, you know, NVIDIA uh, is up about uh, 300%. Obviously, it's been carrying the S&P 500 up. Everyone's very excited about the chips that they produce as in how they relate to AI technology, right? Everyone's using these chips for large language models. Obviously, revenue, you know, has been really good. But you found some very interesting uh, insights from the last quarterly report, and you distilled those in a very interesting Twitter thread. I just wanted to maybe just start by going through this. Um, so, yeah, basically, you start by, you know, looking a little bit at the revenue, and you point out that, you know, there's a little bit of a mismatch, you know, because we see revenues going up a lot, but then cost of revenues barely going up. So what's going on there? Yeah, so um, usually people just like, especially the algos, right, which is where you trade off the headlines and get these big moves post earnings. So what happens is people look at the headline figure and then they go, oh, wow, it's a massive beat. We have to send the stock up or, you know, it's a miss. So we have to send the stock down. And you have this really uh, like really algo driven trading happening in the first few minutes post an earnings release. And no one really bothers to look at, wait a minute, what's actually behind those numbers? Like, how have they done what they have said they have done? And if you have a little bit of an accounting background, because that's really all it takes, and you just go and look at, okay, so they have posted these revenues, but what is their revenue recognition policy? Like, how have, it, how have they done this? And then you just dig a little bit and a little bit, and then it just keeps the info just keeps coming right like you just you just start i mean that's that's how i started i looked at the wild earnings beat and i thought you know if it had been apple or microsoft or pretty much any other company when you're guiding 11 billion and you know you're going to hit 13.5 billion by the time they had crossed 11 billion they would have put out a pre-announcement saying that we are going to have a beat this quarter just to set the expectations mm-hmm. so that people don't uh, chase the stock on earnings day right so uh, good companies, conservative companies tend to do that. But in NVIDIA's case, it was as if they had deliberately set for that beat. And so mm-hmm. that was the, that was the, the fact that just got me started on it. So it's not like I, I know like people on Twitter make it out to be like I have obsessed over NVIDIA or I have spent months on the stock or something like that. But that's really not true. Like I look at all the earnings releases of the companies I follow. And when I saw mm-hmm. this particular fact, it jumped out at me and that got me digging. So mm-hmm. that 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 is, I think that's the key point there. Like you look at the mm-hmm. beat and then you look at what's behind the numbers. And usually in most cases, it's nothing, right? It's just genuine growth. But in this case, you find something pretty interesting, which is all the uh, things that I have outlined in that uh, Twitter thread. Absolutely. Well, let's get into that a bit. But as you mentioned, of course, one of the key issues here is that, you know, there's a thing about close to three, three billion, right? Which, you know, if you take that off, you know, then that earnings speed, of course, turns into an earnings miss, right? So, of course, like you say, that really affects the headlines, possibly the algos. And you do also get into, I believe, uh, the idea that uh, they were doing some uh, buybacks right before the earnings. But before yeah. we get into that, let's just, sorry. Yes? Yeah, no, sure. Go ahead. 
Yeah, let's 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 get into it part by part. Um, so first of all, now you talk about the fact that basically, if I'm explaining this correctly, right? I'll, I'll let you do. I'll let you explain it much better than me. That basically, Nvidia is recognizing some revenues that they don't have yet, right? So we can and we can see that reflected in the fact that there's a big increase in the accounts payable. Uh, the receivables, right? Sorry, the accounts receivable, right? So tell us a little bit, right. how exactly is NVIDIA doing that? Because you're, you're talking here about the fact that NVIDIA is kind of recognizing this revenue because it kind of uh, calls it, it's not like a sale of goods, rather uh, it's under license and development arrangements. So it's counting it as a service, right. is that right? Right, so it's a bundle. So, you know, the, the background to this is if you dig, uh, let me just pull up my notes. So if you dig a uh, little, um, like go back a few years. So right now, NVIDIA has two business segments. One is computer mm -hmm. networking and the other is graphics. But if you just go a few years back, like uh, starting in the um, like 2017, 18, all those years, they had two separate business segments, which was GPUs and their Tegra processors. So they did not uh, so in between, like in, starting in 2020, that is the fiscal year ending in Jan 2021, they changed their reporting segments. So GPU and processor became computer networking and graphics. So you have that switch there. And once you have that switch, now we are no longer a product company. Mm -hmm. Because when you say computer networking, so now we are including your data center in that. And the data center is a bundle of software. It's a bundle of the chips. It's a bundle of um, all the CUDAs, whatever they have written. So once you make that switch, now here's the interesting part. Like if you are selling a pure product, then you need to book the revenue once the transfer of control has happened. Once the inventory is no longer under NVIDIA's control. So, you know, maybe it's going from your own warehouse. Maybe it's going from a third party warehouse. Maybe you put it onto a truck and then you recognize the revenue, but whatever it is, you need to have a clear transfer of control happening before you can recognize the revenue. But when it comes to a bundle of software and hardware, it gets tricky, right? So the software, I mean, NVIDIA could always make the claim that the secret sauce is the software that makes the hardware run. Mm -hmm. In which case, you might be able to recognize, uh, I don't know, I'm just throwing numbers here, maybe 70% of the value of the contract you might be able to recognize it once the software is ready, even though the hardware is not ready to be shipped, right? So you could mm -hmm. do that. Um, and that's perfectly legal. That's perfect. I mean, accounting wise, it's perfect, which is where, you know, I think I got a lot of feedback from people saying this is just accrual accounting. Yes, this is just accrual accounting. But the key factor here is that is the revenue being recognized for the software portion or for the hardware portion. And my guess is mm -hmm. as software is ready because that's what they say in the revenue recognition policy. As soon as the software is ready for that particular customer, we will recognize that revenue. Now, maybe there's a hardware mm -hmm. component. Maybe they consider it a small portion of that total contract. And this is why they are able to have that massive earning speed without the rise in cost of goods sold, right? Because usually when you find a company growing revenues like this, their costs would go along with it. And mm -hmm. interestingly, like in this case, inventories are not rising. Usually when you know you have record sales and you know you're going to have record sales in future, you're going to have a higher inventory level. But 
that's not the case that we find in NVIDIA. So it, it's all these dynamics that make me think that they're probably, once they switch their uh, uh, business lines to uh, computer networking and graphics, that maybe they have started recognizing a lot more software revenue and that's where they are getting their beat from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's very interesting because like you say, you know, you could look at this and say, all right, well, this is just regular accounting, right? You know, they, they've sold the good, but they haven't quite got the money yet, right? But I guess it's it's kind of a thin line, right? Because, you know, what 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 is NVIDIA doing exactly? Is it providing a service or is it selling a good? Like you say, it's kind of it's kind of a mix, right? So that's why it seems to get a bit muddled. Because I mean, if you well, what people think of NVIDIA mostly as well, they're manufacturing these chips and selling them. But then there's this idea that because it's kind of combined with the software, that there's a kind of service element, which is why they can recognize the uh, revenue uh, beforehand. Which yeah. again, traditionally, there could be nothing wrong with that, but it seems a bit fishy, right? Because especially in the situation that NVIDIA is where potentially they could be facing, you know, uh, supply shortages or, or for example, you know, there could be an issue with demand, right? So I think that could be the issue here, right? That, you know, you have, for example, these 3 billions of recognized revenue and there could be, there's a chance that maybe there could be some issue with that, fulfilling that revenue, whether from the supply side or the demand side, is that kind of what yeah. you're seeing? Right. And uh, to just add to my point here, so I'm just pulling up my notes. So um, from this is from the 2017 Form 10K. So by 2017, that's the year ending in Jan 2018, where they say that they have a platform strategy, wherein they bring together hardware, system software, programmable algorithms, libraries, systems, and services to create unique value for the markets they serve. And that uh, paragraph goes on and on, but the key point that they have made in that uh, paragraph and which they have repeated subsequently in the other form 10 case is we are not just a hardware company. You know, they, they have kind of tried to make the transition from people thinking of them as just a hardware company. And they have said that, you know, we have value in our IP, we have value in our software development kits and on and on and on. So when you do that, you actually are giving yourself the grounds to switch your accounting a bit to take in your software revenue as well. So once you do that, then regardless of whether your product delivery is met, you will be able to recognize revenue. And the only problem here is, let's say by year end, they are not able to ship the product because you know there's just too much demand and the, the manufacturer is not able to keep up. Mm. What happens then? So then these account receivables will have to be impaired because right, if exactly. you made a contract for both hardware and software, you book the revenue when the software is ready, but the hardware is not ready to be shipped. So the client doesn't owe you that money. So now you're going to have to impair that receivable. So I think mm -hmm. uh, somewhere in like say two quarters down the line, we may see that play out provided the demand is real and provided that the software i mean the hardware is not ready to be shipped by then so that's probably um, the, i i suspect that might happen but you never know but overall my main point here is people just look at this revenue number and they think oh wow it's going to grow to the sky whereas i'm just looking a little behind the numbers and saying maybe all is not what, what it mm -hmm. seems like 
I mean, you can have theories, you can have conjectures, but at least right now, people are not talking just about that revenue beat, right? They're talking about what's going on behind the scenes to make that beat. So they're talking about receivables, they're talking about uh, inventory, they're talking about core view, they're talking about other things. And I think that's really all I wanted to do was to create that conversation that goes beyond just the headlines. Right, absolutely, exactly. And like you say, sometimes, you know, it's important to look beyond the headlines because, you know, there can be little things, you know, hidden there. And actually, NVIDIA has been uh, known to do this before. I believe there was some scandal back uh, 2018, 2017 regarding the fact that they weren't fully disclosing um, how much of their revenue was um, due to the uh, rap, um, GPUs they were saying to crypto miners, right? Right, right, yeah. Right. So like you say, there's that issue, first of all, with the supply, I believe, right? Because, you know, they could be hiding, you know, the issue of supply, which, as we know, has been, you know, an issue with uh, with chip manufacturing for some time. The other thing you point out also is kind of from demand, right? A couple of things, I would say. Uh, one is you point out that, you know, a large part of their demand is concentrated on, you know, a few clients, right? You have uh, this quote here from the filing, which says, a large CSP, which primarily purchases indirectly, through multiple system integrators and distributors is estimated to represent approximately 22% and 19% of total revenue for the second quarter and first half of fiscal year 2024. So that's that's a pretty large number. What do you make of that? Um, the distributor, I think it's straightforward. So with the sanctions on China and the Middle East coming in, they're probably trying to shift the product, get it out of their control because... As a public company, there's only so much they can do when it comes to sanctions, right? Whereas for a distributor, mm -hmm. they have a lot of freedom. So I think that part is mm -hmm. pretty straightforward. But this also brings the question of whether this revenue will get repeated. Because uh, we saw this with the other semiconductors when the sanctions were coming in, when uh, there was this big scandal about the Chinese telecom giants spying on Americans, and then the US government sanctioned uh, Huawei. And... At that time, there was a lot of channel stuffing going on as well. I mean, not exactly channel stuffing, but the Chinese were building a lot of inventory in anticipation of the sanctions impact. So the distributor probably, probably one off and probably related to this. I mean, we don't know, right? But I'm just guessing. And the cloud service provider, probably there's genuine demand. But again, you don't know if they have booked the entire contract or a good portion of the contract already and the remaining is just the, you know, the hardware part or the deployment part. And if that's the case, then that's not likely to be repeated either, right? So the the problem is, one, the concentration is a problem because it's just two big customers. And secondly, it's a lot, it's a black box. We don't know exactly what's going into these uh, revenue figures. We don't know if this is going to be repeatable. And sure, the company says, the next quarter revenue is going to be 16 billion, but there is absolutely no way of knowing whether they are going to, you know, get to that figure. But uh, it's it's just a black box, and the way people, you know, sort of are taking these numbers for granted and thinking this is how it's going to be, like they are going to hit the hit or exceed the expectations. I think that's probably not going to be true because of what they have done already with the accounting. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just my opinion. I could be wrong, of course, but whatever I have seen tells me that that seems to be happening here. Absolutely. I mean, at the very least, you know, whether you believe that, you know, there was something more nefarious happening, you know, you have to ignore 
so there's some risk right here there's the risk that you know some of this um revenue isn't going to actually materialize and also the risk that you know like you say all this customer all this concentration you know may not be repeated i actually wanted to point out also i was going through the financial statement myself and you know it actually mentions here one of the risk factors it's it actually mentions the fact that you know these variables might not be repeatable it actually says and i quote in the future these partners may decide to purchase fewer products not to incorporate our products in their ecosystem or to alter their purchasing patterns in some other way. And this is the most interesting part. It says, because most of our sales are made on a purchase order basis, our customers can generally cancel, change, or delay product purchase commitments with little notice to us and without penalty, which I find very interesting. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, so it's like all this, you know, big order backlog and all these, you know, potential revenues you know it, it seems like they're saying well yeah you know they could they could cancel hypothetically you know quite right. quickly yeah right so True. yeah pretty pretty crazy anyway yeah. so then on your twitter thread you also talk a little bit about the fact that they made some purchases i believe right before the earnings tell us a little bit more about that oh so um what they're saying is that from july 31st to august 24th they purchased uh, 2 million shares. Let me just get my notes here. So, yeah, so they talk about uh, <laughs> how much did they spend? Just a sec. Let's see. Uh, purchase 2 million shares for 998 million. Right. And if you do the math on that, the average price comes to <laughs> 499 a share, which which is only possible if they purchased on the earnings day. So they reported earnings after the close. So the only way they would have mm -hmm. had that higher purchase price if they had purchased <clears throat> it on the very day that they are supposed to report earnings. Now, um, that's highly suspicious because usually when a company is buying back shares, they tend to minimize the amount that they pay. Like usually, uh, so I follow shipping companies mm -hmm. as well. And the buybacks are usually announced <clears throat> at a time are gushing cash, but the stock price is not mm -hmm. reflecting it. I mean, I'm saying usually it's a loose term, but I mean, that's typically what, if you were in the treasury, that's what <clears throat> you want to do, right? You would want mm -hmm. to minimize the cash outflow for the number of shares you take in. But here, the timing is so suspect. Like, first of all, why do that buyback, right? Like, why do the buyback during your blackout period? So the period going into earnings is typically... You're not supposed to be engaging in buybacks or officers are not supposed to be selling unless they've already filed a form with the SEC saying that it's a completely arm's length transaction, meaning the brokers don't have any material inside information from the insiders and the insiders are selling according to a set mm -hmm. plan. Like say they're going to sell shares every Wednesday at 9.30, something like that. Maybe not 9.30, but 10. Mm -hmm. So you have a plan like that in place and then you trade during the blackout period. That's typically the kind of behavior that you would see from an officer who is looking to cash out. And there are reasons for officers to cash out. There are reasons for companies to buy back. So that is all legit. But this timing, wherein the day the stock price gets jammed up all the way to, was it like $518 pre-earnings? So the day it uh, gets jammed that high, the company does this buyback. And people say, oh, but shares trade 20, 30 million shares are day so it's not a big portion of the volume but you have to understand the price is set at the margin right you put in a massive buy order for two million shares mm -hmm. you're pretty much going to swing the market 
I mean, it may be temporary, but the way you swing the market is going to affect sentiment. And this is the most closely watched stock on the planet right now. So that 2 million probably has a huge psychological impact when you do it that way. And mm -hmm. again, this is not normal activity. This is not what a normal <clears throat> company does. Right. right. Absolutely. Like, like you say, it definitely looks a bit, uh, looks a bit sus, let's say for sure. And, you know, like you say, also, I mean, obviously they did some buybacks. I was very surprised when they announced, you know, they were going to do 25 billion of buybacks. You know, is there really nothing they can better they can do with that cash other than, you know, buy back their stock at this kind of ridiculous valuation? It seems a bit strange to me. Hey. All right, okay. cash up. So moving on, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the issue with uh, Core Weave, right? So obviously there's this company called Core Weave that has, you know, potentially, um, I believe it's this, they received a 2.3 billion loan backed by the H100s, those new microchips. Uh, tell us a little bit about Core Weave. Yeah, so uh, um, someone uh, has actually put out a very interesting video on Core Weave. So, I mean, that's probably a must watch for people. Um, let me get, I mean, you can, um, show their Twitter handle later. So it's they're called Nobody Special. And yeah, Nobody Special, actually. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, the core weave deal. So here's the thing, right? So either like a lot of the AI semiconductor bulls, and I talk to them regularly on Twitter. So <clears throat> what they see is demand is so strong. Just, you know, look at what Elon Musk is saying. There's not enough chips or, you know, demand is so strong that... Uh, People are paying on the after the resale market. People are paying like 70, 80 percent more than the actual price to just to get immediate delivery. So they say things like this, and then you look at what Nvidia is actually doing, and they have create they have a entity in which they have invested equity, and this entity also has a collaboration agreement on a data center that they are building with Nvidia. So you have a sort of vendor-client relationship. You have an equity investment in this company. And then all of a sudden, you drop down $2.3 billion worth of inventory onto this entity and you book the sale. So, I mean, if demand for your product is so strong, why would you sell $2.3 worth of chips to a company which is... It's just nothing, right? I mean, I can understand if, say, Tesla had bought a billion dollars worth of chips, uh, chips for future demand or any other tech company or anyone in the data center or cloud business. I can understand if they had pre-ordered a massive quantity because, you know, they want to capture the AI, get in on the AI boom or whatever. But <laughs> this, this company, which is pretty much nothing except for a private equity-backed company, which is doing absolutely nothing but building a data center and holding inventory. And this inventory is also financed by a loan, which is unheard of, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if who is going to lend 2.3 billion to a company to buy 2.3 billion worth of chips? Because a chip is a depreciating asset. Mm -hmm. it's, NVIDIA has had write-downs in the past. Other chip mm -hmm. makers have had write-downs in the past. And it's an inventory that goes through boom and bust, right? Like in 2021, there was a shortage. In 2022, there was a glut. So in this kind of situation, who is going to give them a loan to make that 
purchase and why is nvidia dealing with a related party in this manner if demand for the product is strong and i think mm -hmm. these questions somehow the analyst didn't ask them on the earnings call and the company hasn't provided clarity either and incidentally they haven't uh, disclosed the related party transaction yet which is mm -hmm. surprising because given the given the uh, i mean it's a trillion dollar company everyone is looking at it so it just absolutely makes sense that they get in front of the news and talk about their logic and their reasoning for this investment rather than you know have some youtubers and twitter personalities like find it out and then just talk about it and then make it go big right like it would have, it would have made absolute sense for them to disclose this deal and they didn't so which is is just a head scratcher one of the many Absolutely. in this yeah, story mm -hmm. yeah very interesting like you say we had that video from nobody special um that was very interesting it covered everything just to give a little bit of background cool we've relatively new company i believe it was founded maybe back in 2017 they used to do a bit of ethereum mining and now basically what they're doing essentially is uh, buying up the chips and renting them out supposedly or at the very least just holding the inventory decide in the future we, we're not sure what is kind of interesting is one that it is partly backed by nvidia even if it's a small amount the other main partner they have is of course, um, Magneta Capital, which was heavily involved with the, you know, creator, you know, with, with creating the um, the CDOs and, you know, the idea being that they were creating the CDOs during the great financial crisis while they were simultaneously shorting the housing market, right? And that's what right. you know, is is referred to as the Magneta trade. So obviously a very dodgy uh, entity, to say the least. Uh, obviously a lot of conflicting interests, right? NVIDIA has an interest, uh, I believe also, uh, there's some other big names which you know you could argue also well they have a long position in nvidia too so they might be interested in in creating this kind of you know, if we get more speculative fake demand but i want to get because the core of the issue here i think is that kind of very unprecedented um loan right using the chips as collateral right because and people again like you say on, on twitter you know some people are, are answering and saying well you know that's just like you put up your house as collateral right perfectly normal but this is like you say it's the chip again the key to the question is what you know how how crazy is this ai mania because these chips traditionally like you say they lose 20 30 percent 50 percent i mean i've been looking into it some of nvidia's old chips like from the last year or so you know some of them have maintained their value but to actually give a loan out also a loan of 2.3 billion which probably would take years to pay back using these chips as collateral so I have never seen an asset-backed financing of chips, particularly in that to not at full value. And it's very interesting because it's not like this company actually has plans with this inventory or is doing something with it. I mean, maybe it's doing something with it, but even then it looks suspicious. Like it's one thing to, like you say, put your house up as collateral for a loan. And when you do that, what do you do with the cash? You take that cash and you do something else with it. Maybe you start a business out of your garage, right? Like something like that. But here, what they have done is they have taken the loan and used that to buy the chips. So mm -hmm. the loan is just getting, the cash from the loan is just getting converted into chips. And what are they going to do with the chips? No one knows, right? And what happens if they can't sell them to China because of sanctions? Then what happens to the loan? And uh, these would be the kind of basic questions that anyone would be asking when they are dispersing such a huge loan, right? But it, it just it's just puzzling. Like when you connect all these 
disparate pieces of information together, the revenue figure that they are booking and what they are doing with the inventory is just very, very puzzling. And I don't know where Corvi fits into all this, but one theory could be that if you can create this kind of uh, demand, and I say demand in quotes for your chips, and if you can book those mm -hmm. revenues, and the market is rewarding NVIDIA for like what? Uh, let's say they get to uh, 60 billion in revenue this year. The market is rewarding them with a say $1.2 trillion market cap. So every billion that you add in revenue is adding mm -hmm. several times more that in market cap. And if you're mm -hmm. a significant NVIDIA shareholder, and let's say that you could help them with getting a revenue beat. You're going to make mm -hmm. so many multiples of what you have put in to get that revenue beat in terms of your stock sales, just from the appreciation in the stock price that that's garnering for you, right? And we probably have seen that happening because uh, there is absolutely no logical explanation for the way the stock has moved. Like particularly mm -hmm. if you look at their uh, May 25th around the earnings, the way the stock moved, like it was just in 15 minutes, it's up 25%. And you might see such moves in a small company, maybe a $10 billion mm -hmm. market cap company, maybe a $50 billion market cap company, maybe it moves like that. But this is a trillion dollar company. Sure, it was on its way to becoming a trillion dollars then, but these are not the kind of moves that you would expect. It's moving like a meme stock. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was a meme stock, right? So you can only see that in small companies. For a large company to have that kind of move, there would have had to be some serious behind the scenes, whatever was going on, but something has mm -hmm. to have been going on. And it's a shame that the SEC actually didn't investigate that move either because that was unprecedented. We have had mm -hmm. gap-ups, gap-downs on earnings, but nothing which happens immediately after they put out the news to the next 15 minutes a move of that sort it's unprecedented in market history maybe i should maybe i should go back you know to the nifty 50 era or something to find something of this nature but it's just unprecedented i've never seen or read about anything like this happening and absolutely so, yeah to get to that point if you are a significant shareholder and you know that a deal of this nature could help you make money trading the stock then it absolutely makes sense to do that, right? Because, I mean, what are you doing wrong? You actually are technically not doing anything wrong. The market wants to value $1 billion in revenue at 10x that. So you're just giving it to them, right? So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I know that's the key, I think, here. And like I said, there was a lot of comparisons also to the great financial crisis. And the idea that, you know, is there anything wrong happening, you know, legally, technically speaking, you know, Arguably not, right? But you know, definitely something shady at the very least. I think what it's very interesting and kind of you know you know rounds this out very well is that I think almost well I think since before your post, which was I think Friday, I don't know when it was Friday Thursday, uh, yeah, just around that time we yeah we had we had the CFO uh, of Nvidia sold some shares. We now know right. that the C CEO has also been selling some shares, and also on the other side. Core weave, right? So they raised the uh, 2.3 billion. They they then went out to seek uh, more financing at an 8 billion valuation, and then actually 
uh, you know, now they now apparently they've hired Morgan Stanley to try and sell 500 million of employee shares, which basically seems to be implying that basically I mean, the employees are basically the founders. So the founders are trying to, of, of core, we are trying to cash out. Insiders in Nvidia trying to cash out. Is this is this the trigger? Is this is this how it all unravels now? What 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 can we expect moving forward? What do you think? I mean, probably, but uh, what I have found is, you know, there's no point waiting for the catalyst. The catalyst could be anything. But right. when you see kind of suspicious insider sales, and by suspicious, I just mean in terms of the timing of the sale, like not the amount sold. Like Jensen has probably 84, 85 million shares or something. So this is this is peanuts, right? $117 mm -hmm. million dollars is peanuts compared to his holding. And probably the CFO also has a good chunk, but the what's suspicious is they do the buyback they jam the share price up and then people sell immediately and mm -hmm. probably continue selling i don't know but the timing of all this like happening just within a week right i mean not even a week it's three trading days the timing of this is suspicious mm -hmm. absolutely so, yeah yeah, yeah. So just just full disclaimer, after reading your post, I did I did start a, a small short position in Nvidia. Are you also shorting the stock? Yeah, I'm also shorting the stock. I'm holding NVDS and I'm holding put options. Yeah, so NVDS is a 1.25x inverse leveraged ETF. So they shot NVIDIA with the 1.25x leverage, and you can buy it in a cash account, which is what I have done because when you have uh, crazy moves of this sort, I don't want to see my margin account blown up because of one bad trade, right? And right. it's different when a stock moves five, ten percent. It's different when it moves during market hours, and it's different when it moves pre-market, and there's like nothing you can do about it. So mm -hmm. I bought NVDS, I bought some put options. Some of my clients are outright short NVIDIA and some of the other AI names. So that's how we are playing it. Absolutely. And it's very interesting. And I want to take things back and, you know, try and put on our Tim Four hat here, get us, you know, get us deep into the conspiracies we can. Cause you know, is there something more? Cause I mean, it seems like a very elaborate plan just maybe to make a few extra bucks. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone, everyone's always happy to make some extra money. Could there be something more since Nvidia has been, for example, so responsible for, you know, uh, lifting the stock market. I mean, we basically, I mean, I, you know, I think I, we've all seen that chart now where it's like stock market is tanking and it's like, oh, chat GPT. And then suddenly it starts taking off. Is there something more nefarious? And also mention the fact that, you know, the SEC hasn't investigated all of these moves. Could there be like something bigger happening, like an orchestrated effort to lift the market, something like that? I don't know. I mean, um, conspiracies are pretty hard to pull off and, when they happen, usually a lot of people find out about it and make sure that the information is out there. And right now, I think with NVIDIA, a lot of people are looking and they're not finding, other than the core view transaction, they have not found much. So maybe there's a conspiracy we don't know about yet. Maybe that's going to break a little later. Who knows, you know, maybe the hedge mm -hmm. funds that benefited from the COVID deal are actually setting up to benefit from the reverse, kind of like you create the CDO and then you short them, right? So maybe something of right. that sort is coming up. So hard to tell. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. when what we have seen so far. I certainly wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know if that's what's happening because uh, I was recently reading uh, 
nobody would listen which is harry markopolo's book on the made of security scandal and he talks about the mm-hmm. reason bernie got away with doing what he did is because when he started out he never knew it was going to be this big and that's something i can really mm-hmm. believe because you start something out it's hard to see what the logical end of that would be right and you know you are on a path mm-hmm. and you just keep going on that path so maybe some kind of financial shenanigans happened with nvidia and then the whole thing just got away from them and just blew up and became big so that could be a non conspiracy explanation for what's happening mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you know just like with bernie you know like people if people are making money you know they're just they're, they're very happy to you know just turn a blind eye or just just not ask questions you know as long as, as long as the money keeps coming in so we talked a lot about Nvidia then obviously um you're shorting Nvidia is there any other interesting opportunities here since Nvidia you know is maybe facing some issues are you looking at other companies that could benefit from this somehow of chip manufacturers or other AI plays or just or maybe even other positions like other companies that might um be hurt by Nvidia so other short positions maybe right so actually uh, the overall semiconductor industry is in decline like mm-hmm. uh, chip sales is down year on year i think it's like down in terms of uh, dollar value i think it's down around 17% year on year so there mm-hmm. probably is still a glut because it's a cycle right like when covid hit manufacturing got stopped and then there was too much demand and then there was so classic bull bullwhip effect that we read about in supply chain management so i think some of that is going on here wherein the industry actually is in decline so you go through the earnings calls of these companies and like for instance take micron so micron had a huge inventory write down for two consecutive quarters and they say that this might end soon but that is just the company speculating that it will end like there is no way to know whether the inventory write downs are ending and the inventory write downs are happening because the demand just in materialize as expected so beneficiaries if nvidia goes down i think it would be the reverse like given its weight in the indices and all the pressure that uh, so morningstar released a survey saying uh, mutual funds are not holding the index level allocation in the stock and that's a problem which is why they are underperforming so now you have this pressure on mutual fund managers to own the stock you have pressure on pretty much everyone who has not owned uh, the magnificent 7 is having a bad year right so we have this huge pressure to track the index to hug the index and if you have resisted for so long probably now is when you just give in and track the index and then if nvidia crashes it brings the whole index down with it so i think uh, instead of looking at mm-hmm. who would benefit we have to look at what would be the repercussions if nvidia actually starts to i mean just get back to a fair valuation that's it right it's a bubble if it gets back to a fair valuation what kind of drop are we looking at and what kind of impact will that have on the rest of the market so i think it's it's the reverse mm-hmm. like i don't see who is going to benefit from this but again like ai is real it's been around for a for a very long time actually and it's going to keep growing so maybe mm-hmm. in the long term when we find so there's one company in particular that i like it's called snowflake and again i find the stock mm-hmm. to overvalued but i think they could be a big beneficiary of ai like maybe 4 5 years down the line maybe not immediately 
So I would be looking at stocks like that, like real companies which are growing revenues at a good, like at least uh, growth at a reasonable price, right? So if you're selling at uh, PG of one, then, you know, it's fine. But if anything more than that, I am looking for that growth. And I want to see companies have actual gap earnings, you know, not mm -hmm. taking out stock-based compensation to put up free cash flow numbers. So you see actual gap earnings with mm. revenue growth. And I think Snowflake probably might get there. Another company that could probably get there is Cloudflare because right now, um, the reason I like that company is because every financial website I use, pretty much every website I use, if let's say I use a VPN, it's going to immediately go to the Cloudflare verification page. Like they are gaining market share. It's clear that they are gaining market share. So probably companies of this sort, but these would be individual plays. I cannot see a whole, I mean, maybe there will be a whole sector that will benefit from this, but I just don't see it. I just see maybe individual names can, mm -hmm. up, but all that will happen once people are just tired of tech and they don't want to hear about like when the dot-com bubble burst, right? Mm -hmm. Amazon is a great company. Cisco is a great company, but nobody wants to touch those stocks anymore, right? So when you get valuation go down into the doldrums like that, probably that's when, you know, it would be a good time to start looking at longs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in terms of a price target, then are you, uh, do you have a particular price target in mind for say Nvidia? Like when would you be looking at exiting those short positions? Is there a particular price target? Not really. Like, um, so that's the, that's the analysis part. And then there's a trading part, right? So the trading mm -hmm. part is let's say the stock doesn't move or it just keeps going up, then as a trader, you're just going to have to cut your loss, even though as an analyst, you know you're right. But mm -hmm. somewhere around uh, $200, once the uh, gaps, the trading gaps, once they get filled, <clears throat> that's probably a good initial target. I mean, that's a good initial expectation rather. So, mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, we've talked a little about NVIDIA. I also wanted to get you a little bit of your thoughts on Bitcoin. I thought you, you also mentioned that you're quite interested in gold. Uh, I'm quite interested also in those two. Um, yeah, just love to hear your thoughts on Bitcoin. What? How did you get into Bitcoin and, and crypto? Yeah, so I'm a student of Austrian business cycle theory. You know, the it's a, it's a completely uh, different approach to economics from the typical Keynesian stuff that they teach you in school. And um, from what they were talking about, and I read about the history of money, and that's when I got into gold. Like I understood mm -hmm. its significance and I'm Indian, right? So we were like gold is everywhere. Like gold is part right. of our lives, of our culture. So yeah. I think India is one I, of the largest retail buyers of gold, right? I think. Right. right. I, but I think right now China has replaced us. Like Chinese <laughs> get <laughs> So I always had that fascination towards gold. And when I read about Bitcoin, I think this was around 2013 or something. When I read about it, I was actually listening to all these gold bugs on uh, the Austrian economics forums. They were bashing Bitcoin saying, oh, digital gold, that is never going to be possible. You know, like gold is gold because it's scarce. And they just couldn't get that without the physical part, you can put the other good parts of gold on the blockchain. And mm -hmm. that is digitally native. We are all digitally native, right? So it just makes sense for us. And they just didn't get that. But I kind of started to understand that. And then uh, the Indian Central Bank, 
they came out with a hit piece on bitcoin saying oh this is only for you know money launderers and all that like silk mm-hmm. road and all this and then you're like wait a minute if this actually has a use case i mean they say the same thing about cash so india banned cash in 2016 it's a little known fact but they they just you know they just decided that you know what from now on all your cash is worthless go deposit it in the bank and we'll let you withdraw like a pittance every day and the supposed goal of that was to destroy black money but that's when people really started getting into bitcoin and i was fortunate mm. because a little before that i actually uh, i was working for a company where i was talking about indian equities and i actually recommended bitcoin to clients back then so i kind of saw how bitcoin picked up during the time india demonetized its currency i saw how and that was also a gold bull market at that time so i kind of saw how you know the non fiat trade which was what it was mm-hmm. right then like it wasn't big so the non fiat trade i actually saw the reason that people would hold something like that like when you mm-hmm. hold gold or you hold bitcoin you hold it with yourself right you have your private keys you have your gold in your vault you have it outside the banks then whatever the government does they can't confiscate that you have cash boom i remember when that uh, announcement came in saying that it was banned the cash was banned and i was like this has never been done before but then you go back read history you see that other countries have done something similar before and then it just starts that whole rabbit hole and uh, that's when i um, kind of got into both gold and crypto because i was fortunate to join a company that was focusing on both those sectors at that time so yeah that's long way of saying that's my intro into it mm. so, so i've seen for, all, all the markets and the bear markets since 2016 in these markets so very interesting i didn't know that so you say cash is banned in india but you can use cash right in india no like so what they did was they banned uh, the high denomination banknotes uh, okay. in the guy so eradicating black money and then they right. told us if you have those notes you have to go deposit them in the bank and okay yeah that whole other industry of you know black market deals where people mm. with too much cash they instead of depositing it in their account they would go pay a broker a commission they would get it converted into something or the other so i mean that led to a i mean the guys was eliminating black money and it actually led right, to a whole right. host of, yeah so it it was just crazy but Absolutely. that that was when pretty much even the finance people who so uh, india has had an equity bull market i think for the last decade so you talk to any finance guy in india anyone who is in equity uh, research he would mm-hmm. bash gold bash bitcoin bash everything else bash even us stocks because india is performing and giving the best returns and this event led them to also look at the risk that they are taking in just having an equity heavy basket and mm-hmm. they started mm-hmm. getting into gold and bitcoin and started getting a lot of questions about gold and bitcoin after this time mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting yeah i believe europe did do something i they might have uh, taken away the 500 euro notes as well similar thing you know and to an extent you know arguably also conspiracy theories you know that's kind of what it was happening with covid right they say oh don't use the cash you know because it's it's got the germs in yeah. it we've got to eliminate the cash and happy to hear you you know have a similar background to me in, in the terms of you know obviously understanding the the value of gold and how that can translate to 
to Bitcoin. I'm ashamed to say at one point I was an Austrian economist, but you know, they, they, they get some things right, but they definitely are, are lacking in in a few a few key concepts. Yeah, so, I think there's a lot of inviting within the group, right? Like that's what puts people away, like, and that's what yeah. I noticed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. To me, it, I, I kind of got a bit lost with the Austrian economists. They would go on about 100% fractional, like they would go up against fractional reserve banking, which, you know, kind of made sense. But then I just realized it, it doesn't. I mean, you, you need, if, you, if you're going to have a bank, you need fractional reserves, right? You can't say, that's not where the crime is happening. You know, I mean, if you print money, that's that's bad, you know, but if you're just loaning money, I mean, yeah, you, you might make some bad loans, but that isn't inherently something bad about the system, I think, no? Yeah, like, I mean, so if the Fed didn't exist and you had fractional reserve banks, more power to you, right? I mean, you take the risk, you make the gain or you go bankrupt mm -hmm. and then you go to debtors prison. So that, that used to be a thing back then. People didn't make those risky bets because if you go into debt, you go to prison. Now what happens? You go into debt, you go to the government, you get a bailout. Right. right. That's pretty much what we got during the GFC. So mm. if the incentives were different, then, you know, fractional reserve banks, you know, it's no different from subprime or any other innovation. You just go mm. ahead and you do it. But if you fail, there's no government guarantee. You go to debtors prison and you're supposed to pay all those loans back. And if you do that, I think that would deter quite a lot of the risk taking that we see in banks, right? I mean, banks are like hedge funds. They are levered 30, 40 to 1, probably. Mm -hmm. Right? right. I mean, that's the same leverage. Like, I cannot go to a broker and tell him to give me 30, 40, maybe to a crypto exchange, I can go get 50, 50x leverage on Bitcoin futures, you know, and they say that's bad. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the banks, look how levered they are. And they get free government bailouts also, like we saw with the Silicon Valley Bank. All you need is a few people going and lobbying, and suddenly it's like FDIC rules don't matter. You get your bailout money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's and that's that's the problem, really. The, the moral hazard, of course, that is created. Now, I'm curious. Then, are you like a what you might call a Bitcoin maxi, or do you see any value in any of the other cryptos? So, um, I have um, done a lot of business on behalf of myself, my clients, like where we have had to make cross-border payments, and we prefer USDT, that is USD mm -hmm. Tether. And right. when you do it, you realize the value in Ethereum, you realize the value in Tron, all the other networks, right? Because you have Bitcoin, you, you send Bitcoin on the blockchain, fine. Like if you are a fellow maxi or if you're a person who is running a business which depends on Bitcoin, then you're probably going to accept Bitcoin. But right now, everyone is just moving tethers around. And this is a evolution I've seen since 2016 because in 2016, 2017, during that bull market, Tether wasn't a big deal. In fact, people were afraid of Tether. You would use mm -hmm. Tether only for transactions. It's like it's like the public restroom, right? You use it, get in, get out. <laughs> and, you know, hold on. So it was like that. And Bitcoin was what people thought was a store of value. And again, so it's incentives, right? When Bitcoin's going up, when it's having this long, big bull market, everyone wants to just hold Bitcoin. But then when the bad things start to happen, that's when people are like, Maybe I should not be holding my entire crypto portfolio on Bitcoin. And then you have the ICO bubble coming in and there was a 2017 ICO bubble. People are like, I need Ethereum in order to participate in this. And then you had the whole NFT craze and they're like, I need Ethereum to participate in this. So it's genuine ground up demand coming from users who want something. 
Now, there's a whole question of whether from one cycle to the next, whether these coins and these tokens will retain their value, but that's a separate question. Like, what's clear is that there is demand for other crypto projects, cryptocurrencies for different use cases, not for the digital gold use case, which is, I think, done. Like, 10 years from now, I don't think there's going to be any other crypto that's going to be digital gold like Bitcoin is, right? Because... It has the longest history. Like the reason gold has this value is because of 5,000 years, it's stayed the mm -hmm. same. Right? right. Gold has been mutated and Bitcoin is the same. Like you had all mm -hmm. these attacks with Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, like all these folks and, you know, mm -hmm. all these contentions and all the infighting that we saw. But still, Bitcoin is Bitcoin. There haven't mm -hmm. been any major changes, as many drastic changes, like upgrades, sure, but nothing drastic. So I think Bitcoin will always have that function. But at the same time, there's a space beyond Bitcoin where other crypto projects. So it's similar to, it's probably not, I mean, you shouldn't be calling it a currency, maybe. Mm -hmm. But if you say just crypto projects or crypto tokens, I think I can see the use case there. You know, mm -hmm. other blockchains, other applications, other things that get built on other blockchains like, there's a whole there's a whole reason for that space to exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now I know that you obviously kind of made your name a little bit by moving away from you know what all your peers were doing. But I'm kind of curious, since you are from India, what are your thoughts on Indian equities? Because of course, you know, a lot of people get very excited, especially now that right China is kind of out of favor and it's like India is kind of like the new China, right? I believe the Indian population just surpassed China or was about to or is projected to at some point everyone's very excited like you say indian equities in general have done quite well is there is there still value there do you invest in some indian equities how do you how do you view the uh the equity market there yeah so what i've done is um i invested in a um, lot of shipping companies in 2021 2022 so what i did was i invested in the indian shipping companies now valuation wise there is no comparison indian equities are very expensive but the thing is, um, you have this whole market. So you have people who are opening brokerage accounts for the first time. And I'm talking about my peers, my friends, people who... Uh, so there's a whole culture shift here. Like since uh, for, I think, last 50, 60 years, people thought equities were risky. They would associate equities with brokers jumping off the rooftops or some scam or some mm -hmm. scandal. And they would be like, oh, no your brother-in-law lost his life savings in equities, don't go there. You know, that used to be the mentality. Mm -hmm. And with this generation that's starting to shift, so even though, you know, the older generation, like uh, our parents' generation, so I'm 34, so just to throw that out there. So our parents' generation, they may not see the value in equities, but the kids are slowly catching on. And that's happening because you had this long secular boom. I, I think it's like a 12-year bull market or something. Mm -hmm. And when you have this kind of boom and then, you know, they get exposed to it and now you have fintech, you have all these apps making it easy. Like how you have Robinhood in the US, we have Zeroda. So it's zero commission trading. So you have all these apps which are gamifying it, making it easy. And then you have mm -hmm. all these um, people on Twitter and Instagram, they are posting their verified PNLs and they're saying, look how much money I made writing mm -hmm. options. And then you have all these stars selling their courses and they are slowly starting to suck that money in. So uh, I don't know, valuation-wise, I always found it very overvalued, but I get the reason that Indians are 
getting into equities and pushing values up even higher is like a good comparison would be Japan in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dr. Lynch uh, from mm-hmm. One Upon Wall Street in his book, he has a quote, uh, how do you know this dog is worth a million dollars? You can trade it for two cats worth half a million each. You know, right. like it was <laughs> absurd. The valuations were absurd, but the market kept going up because mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons, like they were printing money and all that, which is the same in India. But it's also because the number of participants is growing. Like you mm-hmm. just look at number of brokerage accounts that are getting opened. It's it it also reminds me a little bit about uh, China from 2019 to 2014. The brokers made a lot of money because they got a lot of account signups. Like a lot of trading activity was happening, and then it all went to bust. Now the thing with India is it's had this 10, 12 year bull market, and maybe it continues, maybe it doesn't, but given that I can play on a global scale. So because I'm not uh, restricted to just Indian equities, I wouldn't go there. But, mm-hmm. you know, if um, for a lot of Indians, so India has huge capital controls. So you, it's not easy for you to, that's the reason I moved to Dubai mm-hmm. in the first place. Like, because you, you, you cannot uh, trade equities, futures, crypto that easily out of India. Like global markets, it's kind of uh, semi-banned because it's very difficult for you to get access mm. and because of that when someone says like i put up a post and i say gold they go by the gold etf in india and you have people who watch worldwide news they look at tech and they see the boom and they're like how do i benefit from this and they go find some indian equity maybe it sells at 100 p but they're like this is the only thing i can buy so that's what i'm going to mm-hmm. buy and i think this uh, bull market or this boom ends when Indians get easy access to global equities. But since that doesn't seem to be happening, I think probably this continues or maybe this is like the top and you go sideways from here or the bubble burst. I don't know, but mm. it's just something too expensive. And because I don't have to be restricted to Indian equities, I wouldn't go there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very interesting insights and kind of brings us back to a little bit about what you were saying before, the distinction between maybe the fundamental, you know, valuation analysis and then trading, you know, sometimes, you know, they're, they're not necessarily necessarily the same thing, right? I mean, Indian equities could, could keep going up even if they're very expensive right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Kashyap, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Your thread on Twitter was, you know, enlightening. It was, it was really great information out there. Where can we send people on the internet to find you? Oh, I have my own website. It's kashyapstiram.com. So um, you can probably just sign up there. Yeah, and okay. uh, you'll we'll... get alerted put out new articles there. And then my Twitter handle is at kashyap286. So you can follow me there. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. And, you know, keep up the outstanding work. And, you know, I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, sure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, James. All right. Thanks, Kashyap. Take care. Thank you once again for listening to this conversation. If you're still around, I take it that you enjoyed it. So I'd like to once again remind you that you have the option to receive more of my content if you subscribe on Spotify. I do a weekly weekend video where I cover everything that's happened throughout the week, giving actionable investment ideas, covering the macro, looking at charts, and I put those out every weekend. You can subscribe directly on Spotify. Alternatively, you can also follow me on Substack. There's plenty of free content there. And for subscribers, there are also available 
the same weekly videos that I just mentioned and also weekly macro newsletter. So around Tuesday, Wednesday, I also put out a macro newsletter where I write about everything that has happened. And again, you know, investment ideas, technical analysis and all that good stuff. So you can go ahead and check out my Substack on the description and that's all. Thank you very much.